Welcome everyone, this is Islam for Christians, episode 125, Biblical Figures in Islam, part 23, New Testament, Jesus, part 2, the Trinity, Jesus as the Son of God. The story of Jesus Christ, the greatest teacher in the history of the world, Jesus Christ, the Logos, the Son of God, the second person of a God, both triune and singular, three persons, one God. It really is the greatest story ever told, the wildest, the most scandalous and most beautiful religious idea in the history of the world. This idea that an all-powerful God loved his creation so much that he would, through his son Jesus Christ, lower himself to the level of his creation. And in a dramatic way, he was born poor and tortured and executed by evil men, voluntarily experiencing the most awful aspects of the human experience for himself. And God did this not because he had to, but out of sheer love for humanity. And that God, in that moment, but in actually, actuality for all eternity, you know, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever, this God, this God was a triune God in constant relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This powerful and perplexing idea it drove great figures, like even early, right away, like the disciples and Paul and then the martyrs and the missionaries and all the Christians after them. It was this idea of a God who desired not to call them slaves, but a God who desired to call them friends. Or his children sons, and daughters. Now, that is the Christian Jesus, the singular version as told by his disciples in the church that followed. And Jesus was or is, however you want to put it, Jesus is a person unique among religions. And he occupies a place in Christianity that is not like the main figures of other religions. Muhammad was a prophet. Buddha was a very wise and enlightened guy. Moses was a lawgiver. But in Christianity, Jesus himself is wisdom and love and the law. He is the way, the truth, the life. We literally consume his flesh and blood every week. No other religious figure has that central, that pivotal, that indispensable of a role. The Jewish majority, for example, in Jesus' time and afterward, they decided to simply dismiss Jesus. But for other non-Christians particularly faiths that have their origins after the year 0 AD, it's Anu Domini, their relationship to Jesus, it's going to be more complicated. 
Here in the American Midwest, on the shores of Lake Michigan, there is this spectacularly beautiful temple, an impressive, massive building that stands out as one of the wonders of the Chicago area. And even given the close proximity of America's most spectacular skyline, just to the south. Now, this building is the supreme North American temple of the Baha'i faith, a religion that traces its origins through Islam to Shia Islam to its founder in the mid-19th century. So, their beliefs about Jesus are, basically, the Islamic ones in many ways. And explaining this to me one time, there was one very nice lady over there who was sort of trying to convert me. And she was giving me reassurance as a current Christian that, hey, if you become a Baha'i, you get to keep Jesus. Now, for a lot of religions, that would be true. For example, if you're a Jew and you become a Christian, yeah, you can keep Moses. He's not really going to change in any significant way. But like I was saying, Christianity, it's different. So this wasn't exactly true. This idea that, hey, you get to keep Jesus. Well, no, actually, you don't. I suppose technically you are keeping Jesus, but at a spiritual and an emotional level, and I mean this in the nicest way possible, that is just a ridiculous statement. The Baha'i do not believe in Jesus Christ. They don't actually believe in Jesus. They're just paying respect to some guy from Galilee named Yeshua. Looking at this as a Christian, that version of Jesus who has been demoted in the most severe way possible, well, maybe not the most severe way possible, but it's a significant demotion because his teachings and his statements are going to be played down or outright ignored sometimes. And his friends have been treated similarly. Their beliefs about Jesus played down or ignored. And the church he founded, its beliefs about him being downplayed or ignored. Even his death and resurrection it's being misunderstood at best or dismissed by those who will not or cannot think of God in that way. And that's downplayed or ignored. And this unusual situation exists because Jesus is an unusual situation. Now, realistically, if you walked into that temple as a Buddhist, and you became a Baha'i, you could totally keep Buddha. You could probably keep Krishna. You could keep Zoroaster and Moses and Muhammad. But Jesus, the Christian Jesus, not a chance. The Christian claims about Jesus are just too much, too huge, too universe-shattering to simply temper, to just moderate a bit, to take the edge off. And that is why Jesus, as understood in the Islamic context, plays such a fascinating role in the religion of Islam. What do you do with a demoted Jesus? 
not a dismissed Jesus, as in the Jewish strategy, an incorporated and downgraded Jesus. What does that look like? How do you make this work? Well, here's the Islamic framework. This is what the Quran says, Surah 4, verse 171. O people of the scripture, do not exaggerate in your religion, nor utter aught concerning Allah save the truth. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was only a messenger of Allah, and his word which he conveyed unto Mary, and a spirit from him. So believe in Allah and his messengers, and say not three. Cease, it is better for you. Allah is only one Allah. Far is it removed from his transcendent majesty that he should have a son. His is all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth. And Allah is sufficient as defender. So here we have the Islamic Jesus, downgraded a bit, but still important. So basically, Messiah and prophet. So what does that mean for Islam? What is the role of this figure in Islam? That's never really made clear. There's really no obvious path, no real short answer, <laughs> aside from maybe Messiah and prophet. But again, what does that mean? It just begs for further explanation. So here, Jesus is hailed as a prophet, but Muslims do not believe in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nor are we pointed to the Gospels that should be believed instead. The Quran has much to say about Jesus' birth and his birth to a virgin, also highlighting his miracles. But the moral and cosmological versions of Jesus are entirely absent from the Quran. Now, by that, I mean the Islamic Jesus is lauded with praise as a miraculous figure born of a virgin, but it never tells you why. Why was it important that he was born of a virgin? What was his earth-shattering role that made him such an important figure? The Islamic Jesus, just like the Christian one, has this foretelling prophet, this person preparing his way in John the Baptist. So that is still happening. But why? What was the message being delivered that was so important? If he was not the Son of God and not divine, then what was the point of all this? Now, these questions are worth asking because Jesus was no ordinary prophet. He was born of a virgin. <laughs> this is a big deal. He's no minor prophet. So his outsized role in the universe does exist in Islam. Now, we'll get to a lot of that later, because it's mostly outside of the Quran and in the realm of eschatology and all that sort of thing. But aside from that, it really does beg the question, 
Why is Jesus so important? Perhaps he came to let people know about the reality of heaven and hell and of the last day. Now, maybe that wasn't super clear before Jesus. You know, after all, in the Gospels, Jesus is debating some groups of Jews who didn't even believe in the afterlife. And then again, John the Baptist was saying a lot of this stuff before Jesus even came on the scene. But was Jesus just reinforcing that? In this realm, we only have guesses. The why regarding Jesus, son of Mary, has never been codified, so to speak. And Muslims on this subject are left guessing about so much of it. Now, yes, the Quran dismisses a key part of the gospel regarding Jesus' divinity, but it doesn't go through and parse out what is true and what is not true. For Muslims, there isn't a sort of redlined version of the gospel that would be useful to say, hey, this is true, this isn't true, this isn't true. There's none of that. So there really isn't a codified Islamic version of Jesus. Muslims are left to parse through the Gospels like Sherlock Holmes, wondering, again, if they even care about this. Uh, Christians care about this kind of thing far more than Muslims do. But if they do care, <laughs> then Muslims are left to parse through the Gospels like Sherlock Holmes and wondering, what is it that makes Jesus relevant to their faith? Why do we care? The sayings, the lessons, the parables, does any of it matter? And of course, that is for Muslims to decide, and there will be varying answers. So let's just go over what we do know. From a Muslim perspective, what does the Quran definitely tell us about the nature of Jesus? Basically, it tells us that the Christians are wrong. But there is context, plenty in there for Christians who may suspect that the Quran or Muhammad, depending on your perspective, was actually talking to a group other than standard Nicene Creed reciting Christians in these Quranic passages. So we're going to go over a couple of verses from the Quran here. And keep in mind, in the two passages we see, the Arabic word being used is walad, meaning a son, a physical son. Arabic Christians do not use this word when describing Jesus. They use the word ibn, which confers sonship. But it doesn't necessarily mean that a man is saying, this is attesting that this person is a direct product of my sperm. It's, it's son in the metaphorical sense. Talking about Ibn here, the concept of sonship rather than physical sonship. But this word, Ibn, that's not the term the Quran uses in these passages. It's Walad, W A L A D. And the simplest explanation for this. Well, suppose there are two. Say, first, either the Quran slash Muhammad 
they did not really understand what Christians believe. Or, number two, it was addressing a different audience. Now, perhaps it was just about the audience, which is plausible, because the Quran is addressing a group of Arab pagans and probably a sprinkling of Christian heretics or Arab pagans who misunderstood Christianity. Just think for a minute about the pagan audience here. These would be a people with a religious outlook that would be similar to, say, ancient Germany. This idea of many gods who were amoral and very human in many ways. And that includes having offspring. So, Muhammad was trying to pull them out of that mindset into a more moral, spiritual framing of God. And perhaps this is why the more physical term for son is used here. Now, after all, it's easier to refute a Walid than an Ibn, so to speak. And these people would always be the primary audience of the Quran. Because by the time Muslims were having sophisticated theological discussions with Christians, Muhammad was dead and the Quran was done. You know, this wasn't like in Christianity where the founder was debating <laughs> the um, kind of unquestioned heads of the old religion. You know, Jesus was actually in the temple and debating the temple authorities. There was never anything equivalent to that with Muhammad, not even close. Now, funny enough, the early Christians actually had a very similar problem to the one that Muhammad was trying to solve here, because the early Christians, they had to convince a bunch of pagans that God does not have offspring. <laughs> But they probably would have used pagan language first, and then going into greater detail on the true nature of the Trinity. And not everyone had St. Patrick's metaphor of the shamrock to demonstrate three in one. So they could easily sell the superficial meaning of Jesus' sonship, but then the deeper meaning would be a later challenge. Now, I seriously doubt Muhammad had anything similar in mind, but it's an interesting comparison nonetheless. Okay, so I promised you some Quranic passages. Uh, here they are. The first one, Surah 19, verses 88 to 92. And they say, The Beneficent hath taken unto himself the Son, Surely you utter a disastrous thing, whereby almost the heavens are torn, and the earth is split asunder, and the mountains fall in ruins, that you ascribe unto the beneficent a son, when it is not met for the majesty of the beneficent that he should take a son. So, there's nothing surprising there, really. The use of Walid, which I didn't read the Arabic, obviously, but it's there. So there's the use of Walid and a statement about the calamity of the one God taking a son. And an observation, a very, very accurate one, I think, that God 
having a wallet-like offspring would mean the tearing of the heavens and the destruction of the earth. And what is even more interesting is this next passage, which gives another reason why it would be awful for God to have a son, and also gives some context into the previous Quranic statement that I read to you before. Now, both these things were revealed in Mecca. The audience here is Meccan pagans, and it's doubtful much was known about Christianity at this point. This is Surah 23, verse 91. Allah has never had any offspring, nor is there any God besides him. Otherwise, each God would have taken away what he created, and they would have tried to dominate one another. Glorified is Allah above what they claim. And there's that word, walid, again, and a description giving the idea that a begetting God would cause disastrous future rivalries. <laughs> and this is a very, very good point. I agree. However, this cannot be a refutation of the Trinitarian God, because any young Sunday school student can tell you that the Trinity is not a rivalry. This is not a triumvirate, like a bunch of ancient Roman rulers in some kind of organized rivalry. Say, hey, maybe I can be the one at some point, you know, later down the line. It's not like that. But this surah, it's treating the Trinity as precisely that, as if it was the ancient triumvirate. I'm trying to remember, it was, uh, was it Octavian, Antony, and that other guy? I don't remember. <laughs> you can look it up. God cannot have a son, it says, because what would happen if the son undid the old creation and attempted to overthrow his father? Think of the chaos. And like I mentioned, that is actually a very, very good point. The universe clearly has a single designer. Multiple creator gods are a ridiculous concept given this reality. If there were competing creator gods, the universe, as the Quran is talking about here, it would have no consistency. It would be like a company or a country, something that changes depending who is in charge. Again, it's a very, very good point. The problem is, I'm assuming most of you know, that there's never been an established church that actually believed that. It's not a thing in the Christian world, this idea of multiple creator gods. Not Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant, not even the more prominent Christian heresies throughout the years, except maybe Marcionism. But you could even within that, you could argue there was only one creator God there. Absolutely no one believes that God is Cronus and Jesus is Zeus. The Son is not going to overthrow the Father. That is an impossibility. A unified God would not be set against itself or himself, however you want to say it. The Trinity is a unified God in relationship, and that relationship is a unified one. 
there is zero chance that Jesus will try to overthrow God. He can't do that because they're the same person. A person cannot overthrow himself. This notion of competing gods, of a cosmic struggle of power players wanting to be top god, this is an extremely pagan idea. So, where did this specific idea come from? This notion that the Quran is talking about, the idea it is addressing, no one can know for sure. But I would suspect it came from Arabian gods with sons and daughters and all that. It's possible some loon calling himself a Christian introduced this idea. But that does seem a bit unlikely. There were plenty of Christian heretics in southern Arabia at this time, but an ununified trinity is not a concept even among heretics that I'm very familiar with. So, again a semi-refutation of Jesus as the Son of God, but one that is addressed to pagans in pagan terms. So given these words being addressed to pagans, what else is in there? What else does the Quran say about the Son of God? Well, that's about it. Although there is this, uh, Surah 112. It's a pretty famous one denouncing polytheism. It's very short. I'll just read the whole thing. Say, He is Allah, the One, Allah, the eternally besought of all. He begetteth not, nor was begotten, and there is none comparable unto Him. But again, we have those same. Uh, characteristics, early surah, probable pagan audience. And again, there's this same root word, the same root word as walat, wa lam da in Arabic. In this case, it is saying God is not begotten, nor does he beget. That's the common English translation. And it's correct given the standard English definition. Begotten, your know, offspring generated by procreation. Beget, begotten. And for my Christian listeners, yes, that is the same word used in the Nicene Creed. We say it every Sunday. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. And there's more, but I won't read it, as you probably know. So here Christians are using that same word, at least in English, begotten. But in the very same breath, pointing out that the begetter and the begotten are the exact same thing. This is because of things they were trying to clarify at the time. In a world raised on Greek mythology, they wanted to make clear that we're still talking about Jewish-style monotheism here. Now, for context, that word is being used to refute the idea that Jesus was a created being, that he was created and then later became part of God. 
begotten is just used because there really isn't a word, probably in any language, that can actually express the notion of the Trinity in exact terms. So don't fixate on this word begotten too much when you see it. You're supposed to fixate on the mysteries and the meaning behind the creed, not the limited vocabulary that's used to express it. The importance here is that these are not part of the creation, the Father and the Son. These are still the creators. Nothing is being created. Jesus is eternal, just as God is eternal, which actually kind of addresses the Quranic worry about chaos. This was to make the Father and the Son the same, the same substance, to differentiate from created things like rocks and plants and people. And so, let's go back to this word, begotten. I think one major problem we have here, in a Christian-Muslim sense, could be the simple difficulty of translating between languages. If you look at the Quran and then look at the Bible, or a text like the Nicene Creed, you're taking an Arabic word and translating it into English, and then comparing that English word to a translation of a Greek text that is building on a religion based on a Hebrew text, and possibly in a sort of Aramaic world. Now, it's inevitable that some things will be lost in the shuffle. This is why your pastor knows Greek and Hebrew and your imam knows Arabic. But language is still a limited means of communication. It's limited to human expression and intellect. It cannot express everything. And then we have the limitations of our specific language, one that didn't even exist at the time of Jesus or Muhammad. There were no English people, and the English language was not a thing yet, and it wouldn't be for a very long time. And maybe English just may not have the same set of tools that are needed for comparisons like this tools that are so important to comparing the concept of the Son of God in Christianity and Islam. Thus, my earlier warning, not to get too invested in the word begotten. Now, perhaps the English language simply does not have the tools to explain this as succinctly as the Greek does. Um, that word in the Nicene Creed and in the Gospel of John that is translated as begotten is the Greek word Monogenes. Now, this word seems to be a combination of the words unique and birth. Not literally. It just seems to convey these two ideas. So, yeah, when a child is born, that is a unique born person. And so is Jesus, a very unique born person. But it also seems to be a relational word, which is why John used it. And this was used to convey the unique category of Jesus. But it also means being the only one of its kind. You don't even need to know Greek for that. Just look at the first four letters of this word, monogenes, mono, M-O-N-O, -O, one. Now, full disclosure, I'm not a Greek expert, 
I'd love to hear from any Greeks or those who learned more than I did. But this seems a perfect way to encapsulate the idea of someone who is both unique and the same, a unique person, the same substance as the father. This is in the two definitions that I see for monogenies. One, pertaining to being the only one of its kind within a specific relationship, and two, pertaining to being the only one of its kind, class, or something unique in kind. So, one of a kind within a relationship, but also the only one. Sounds like a trinity to me. But really, even in Greek, it's just not an idea that can be explained in a few words. And I'm sure the people of Southern Arabia never heard a Greek word in their lives, even on those long caravans to Syria. They would likely only encounter Greek speakers if they went to the northwestern coast of the Mediterranean. But in the area that they called Syria, they were infinitely more likely to hear Syriac than to hear Greek. They never traveled outside of the Semitic language world. And this very Greek idea of the Trinity never really made it down there, at least not in the form the Greeks would have understood it, or the Romans, or any of the other children of the Greek intellectual tradition, that stuff, for the most part, never got down to Arabia. Now, that's not to say Christianity would have been an impossibility in this area of the world, because you could say similar things about, say, the Ethiopians, but they were building churches at the same time Constantine was. And Syriac Syria was mostly Christian. So the Greek linguistic and intellectual frame, it's not necessary for Christianity to take root. But in Southern Arabia, there was neither proper Christianity nor Greek thought. And this made infertile ground for Christian thought in many ways. And in the end, the Semitic Arabs went the same route as their Jewish cousins on the person of Jesus, or at least a similar route. And so, regardless of how we may parse out these Quranic passages now from our vantage point, and just which audience in particular we feel that these passages were addressed to, in the end, Jesus Christ, the Logos, he was downgraded in Islam to Jesus of Nazareth, or the prophet Isa. He was still a son, just not the son of God. He was Jesus, the son of Mary. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time, inshallah.
Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.